Hey, this is Carl Anderson. I'm the senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church, and this is our sermons podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this message fills your soul with hope, helps you see the beauty of Jesus, and allows you to feel the love that God has for you. If you want more information about experiencing God's love for you personally, head over to sierrabible.org and contact one of our pastors. I love you, and I'm praying for you. One of the primary reasons why we need to move in a direction of stronger classes and stronger teaching is because we have a proclivity to do what happens in the story this morning. The people of Israel at the time of, during the time period of the judges were an absolute hot mess. Not because they lacked strength, not because they lacked military power, not because they lacked wealth or prestige among the nations. They were a hot mess because they were self-indulgent, self-centered people who neglected God's word. They did whatever was right in their own eyes. And today we find ourselves in a particular situation that is quite similar. We have more access to God's word than at any other point in in all of human history. There are more printed copies of the Bible now than at any other time throughout history. We have more access through digital technology to theological resources and, and church history resources than any other time in our history. Yet, our understanding of Scripture and our ability to know the teachings of the Bible potentially hasn't been as low as at any other point in the people of God. In 2017, LifeWay Research found that while 67% of Americans, they believe that heaven is a real place, 45% of people believe that there are many ways to get there, including one in five who would claim to be Uh, Christians who believe the gospel. Uh, More than half of Christians who say that they believe the gospel, 59% believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being, in contrast to orthodox biblical teachings of the Trinity as being three persons in one God. As a whole, Americans, including many Christians, hold unbiblical views of hell, sin, salvation, Jesus, humanity, and even the Bible itself. Simply, we we cannot rely just simply upon church attendance as being the metric that measures whether someone is a faithful Christian or not. We not only need to grow as a church in our ability to fellowship and gather and attend church, but more importantly, we need to grow in our obedience to all that Jesus has taught us. And it's one of the reasons why we are doing these next round of, of core classes and, and ingraining them into the DNA of this church. So we have a deeper, more foundational understanding of all that God has taught us in the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, I know this pandemic has been so difficult for everyone. No one is going to get through this thing unscathed. But so much of our wounds, brothers and sisters, are, are, are self-inflicted simply because we listen to sources that are indulging of our flesh, that are tickling of our ears, rather than the scriptures that call us to crucify the flesh, 
turn away from our self-indulgence and do what is right for the glory of God. Today, we're going to see the tragic story of a sinful leader who squanders his God-given calling by nurturing his sin rather than following the call of God. The, the, The big question that should be embedded in our souls as we are working through this story is this. Do we allow for God and God's word to control our passions? Or are we controlled and dominated by our passions? Let me say that again. Do we allow for God's word to control, rule over our passions? Or do we allow for our sinful passions of the flesh to dominate and control us? Today we're going to see three spiritual lessons in the life of Samson that that show us a picture of a tragic leader who neglected God's word, squandered all that God had entrusted to him, and and nearly made shipwreck of his faith and did not lead the people in the purposes of God. Now, the story of Samson comes on the heels of uh, other major judges that we just saw in Jephthah uh, last week, as Pastor Glenn preached on Jephthah last week, who is basically like a, a mafia leader um, that was appointed to be king of Israel during the time, and he just ruled by, uh, with, a, with an iron fist and had all of these low lives that were a lot around him ruling. After that, it doesn't get much better in the nation of Israel, because uh, after that, a man named Isbon from, of Bethlehem judged Israel. We don't get much information about Isbon. Uh, we just see that he had 30 sons in verse 9 and 30 daughters that he gave in marriage outside of his clan. One of the very things that the Torah, that God's law called the Israelite people to do is to not marry uh, people who worship different gods who worship foreign gods. But Isban uh, gave away his daughters to marry sons from outside of his clan to extend his political influence. And he also had for uh, his daughters uh, sons from the outside come and marry them. It expanded his power base. He judged Israel for seven years. Also, um, I'm not an expert in this area, But even if a woman were to give birth every single nine months for her adult life, there is almost nearly no way that she can give birth to 60 children. So when the scriptures tell us that he had 30 sons and he had 30 sons and 30 daughters, it is implying that he had a harem. He had a number of women in which he was producing many, many different children, potentially many at the same very time. It is a signal to you and to us that Isban is acting just like a Canaanite king, neglecting God's word, leading Israel in the way that he desires to go. We don't hear much about Elon in verse 11, uh, just that he died and was buried in a place in the land. But then in verse 13, we, we see the continuing trend of leaders in Israel acting like Canaanite kings when Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Periathonite, judged Israel. Verse 14, he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons. So now he is perpetuating his line and he's setting himself up as a dynasty for not only his sons, but his grandsons. 
And they rode on 70 donkeys. Each one of them had their own kingly steed to ride on in the ancient Near East. And he judged Israel for eight years and then he died. The spiritual and cultural climate that was happening in the day of Judges was that the leaders in Israel were acting just like their Canaanite counterparts. Their kings were there and their leaders were doing everything that the world was doing. That king gets 30 sons from 15 different wives. Why don't I have 15 different wives and 30 sons? That king sets up a dynasty one generation after another to sit on the throne. Why can't I set up a dynasty one generation after another? It is in this spiritual climate of intentionally neglecting God's word that we see the birth of Samson. We don't even know the name of Samson's mom, but uh, it says that the wife of Manoah, Manoah was going to be Samson's father, and the wife is, is just hanging out at one point, and a messenger from God appears to her. She was barren at the time, and the messenger of God appears to Manoah's wife and says, even though you are barren, you are going to have a son, and your son is going to be a Nazarite. Don't cut his hair. Don't allow for him to drink any strong drink. You're going to have a son. Manoah's wife goes to Manoah and says, an angel of the glorious angel of the Lord appeared to me and told us that we were going to have a child. Now, being that this is a spiritual climate in which everyone is worshiping the Lord and listening to God's law, expecting of all the supernatural things that God can do and understanding that he can do it, Manoah's response is, Praise the Lord. Give glory to God. He in the highest is good, and I am his servant. I cannot wait to, be bo- to have a son born to me who will be a Nazarite. No, that's not what he does. Manoah was incredulous. How come you get a vision from an angel of the Lord? And I don't. So Manoah prays and says, God, reveal to me what you are telling, what you told my wife. So his wife's out in the field one day and behold, an angel of the Lord, a messenger shows up again. Manoah's wife runs and grabs Manoah and says, grabs Manoah and says, come out to the field. You can meet this messenger of the Lord. And Manoah says to the messenger of the Lord, are you the same one that talked to my wife earlier? And get this. It says it just so you know, I'm not just making this up. Verse at the end of verse, at the end of verse 11, Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, are you the man who spoke to this woman? Look at what the angel of the Lord says. The angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord says, I am. If he knew his Bible, if Manoah understood Moses in the burning bush, if Manoah understood his history, if Manoah was a man of God's word that was dwelling in the scriptures deeply, as soon as the messenger of the Lord said those two words, I am, he would have fallen on his face and said, I'm in the presence of God. He would have got down on his knees and worshiped because the Lord was revealing himself to him and to his wife. 
<laughs> but that's not Manoah's response, verse 12. Manoah said, now when your words come true, what is this child's manner of life and what is his mission? Doubting what his wife had already told him. In verse 13, the angel of the Lord said exactly what, she said, what he said to his wife. Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful that she may not eat anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink the wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing, all that I commanded her to observe. Manoah then continues in his incredulity and acts just like the remainder of the Canaanites when he is in the presence of a divine being and he says, let us detain you. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me tie you up here and I'm going to go grab some food and bring you back some food in hope that he is able to manipulate this divine being to do his will. The angel of the Lord says, don't detain me. You can go get an offering and present it, present it before the Lord, but you're not going to detain me. And Manoah says, well, how am I supposed, well, how, how am I supposed to uh, do all of this if I don't even know your name? What is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? In the ancient Near East, knowing the name of a divine being was another way of trying to manipulate them into doing his own will. And if he was perceptive, he would have already heard, I am, and fallen on his face, but he was not. He didn't know God's word. He was incredulous to this revelation. And in verse 19, the angel of the Lord says, why do you ask of my name, seeing that it is wonderful? Verse 19, so Manoah took the young goat and the grain offering, offered it on the rock to the Lord and the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up and the flame with the altar. It takes God burning up this offering on the rock before the pre in the presence of Manoah and his wife for them to realize this is the very presence of God. And then and only then, now Manoah and his wife were watching, they fell on their faces to the ground. This should have happened immediately in the presence of this messenger, this theophany, this revelation of God, but they did not but Manoah in particular did not believe. Manoah is so spiritually dull that then he says, no, we're in the presence of God for we will surely die. And his wife in typical wife fashion elbows him and says, hey dummy, if God wanted to kill us, why did he just tell us that we're gonna have a son? Does not make any sense. If we're gonna have a son, he needs us around to produce the son. And if he just wanted to kill us, he would have killed us a long time ago. This is the spiritual state that is happening at the birth of Samson. Manoah's wife gives birth to Samson. Samson grows and is blessed and the spirit of the Lord is upon him. Verse chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. He came up and he told his father and his mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now go get her for, for me as my wife. Now, his parents weren't the most godly parents, but they did know you're not supposed to marry a Philistine woman. So they say in verse three, his father and his mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Then at the end of verse 3, we see the very philosophy of all of Samson's life embedded in one sentence. 
This is his mission statement. This is the way in which his life is governed. This is what he submits himself to for the rest of the entire, the rest of his entire life. In one sentence, this is his mission statement. And Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. You hear that? I'm going to do me. You can do you. God can do him. But I'm going to be me. She's right in my eyes. I don't care what you say, mom and dad. I don't care what the scriptures say. I don't care what God even says. She's right for me, and I want her. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. God can even use the most wicked and sinful of the passions of people for his own purposes. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines at the time the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now, it's important at this point in the story to understand what the Nazarite vow means. You can read all about it in Numbers chapter 6. But Samson was a Nazarite. He took the Nazaritic vow that's outlined in Numbers chapter 6. And in order to, uh, to uphold the Nazaritic vow, you have to abide by three governing principles, three rules. First, you, you don't cut your hair as long as the vow is in place. You let it grow as long as your hair is able to grow, which means some of you men cannot be Nazarites. <laughs> Not looking at anybody in particular. I see judgmental eyes coming back at me. How, how, how dare you go there? You can't cut your hair. Secondly, you can't have strong drink. You can't eat fruit of the vine. You can't have wine that comes from grapes. You can't drink alcohol if you're a Nazarite. And third, you can't come in contact with a corpse, a dead body of any kind. And if you do come into contact with a dead body, even suddenly your dad dies in your arms, there's an entire ritual back at the tabernacle in which that involves seven days of cleansing in order to renew your vow after you've touched a corpse. Samson was well aware of these things. Look at what happens in verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, wine there, and behold, a young lion came towards him. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hands, he tore the lion to pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Why not? He would have had to go back to the tabernacle, do the whole cleansing ritual, and then he couldn't have gone to Timnah to meet up with the girl that he likes. Then he went down and talked with the woman and she was right in Samson's eyes. He touches a corpse, he breaks his, Nazar his breaks his Nazaritic vow, but he does not care because what is right in his eyes is this girl, and he wants her badly. Doesn't tell his parents, just continues on with his life. 
Verse 8, and some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside and to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and the honey. He scraped it out of it. He went on, eating as he went, and he came to his father and mother and gave some of the honey to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey out of the carcass of a lion. This is a guy who just does not care at all about what he has vowed to the Lord. Completely completely oblivious to God's word and does not care. And then verse 10, his father and mother went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there. And this is a seven-day feast that young men customarily did before their wedding. And guess what there was a lot of at these feasts? Wine, drinking, And the people saw him. They saw 30 companions being with him. And Samson said to them, let me put a riddle to you. And he gives them this riddle and he says to them, if you, and he makes a a nice little Reno-esque wager with them. He says, if you solve this riddle, if you solve this riddle, I'll give you 30 linen garments, 30 bed sheets of the nice linen bed sheets. And and I'll I'll give you uh, 30 pairs of clothes. 30 changes of clothes. If you can't get it, you owe me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. You have seven days. They were made. The whole feast lasts seven days. You have seven days to figure out this riddle. He gives the riddle, and his companions begin badgering his wife, saying, figure out this riddle. Four days go by, four days go, go by and, and uh, his wife begins badgering him. Verse 16, Samson's wife wept and wept and says, you only hate me, you do not love me, you've put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, I have told my father, and I have not told my father nor my mother and, and shall I tell you, she wept before him for seven days that the feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him. She finally wore him down long enough and told the riddle to his wife. His wife then went and told the people. The people, came, the people came and his 30 companions told the riddle back to Samson and Samson is furious. He goes to a city in Ashkelon, kills 30 men, steals their clothes, brings the clothes back and says, here's your payment. Storms off in anger, goes back home. As he's going back home, the father of his wife marries her off to the best man. This like belongs on Jerry Springer, right? <laughs> he is so he is so angry, he storms off. His father gives gives it gives her away. Let's continue going. Let's continue moving forward here. After some days, verse chapter 15. At the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. Remember, he had just killed 30 people, handed over, paid, paid, his, paid, paid off his bet, and stormed off in anger because they figured out his riddle. That was the last that they had heard of him in Timnah. And now he's like oblivious to what he just did. He thinks he's just going to go back down and everything is going to be rosy. Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. He said, I'm going to go into my wife into the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you utterly, utterly hated her. In other words, he's saying, I thought that you storming off in anger was that you divorced her. So I married her off to somebody else. Why don't you take my younger daughter? She's more beautiful anyway. Just take her. 
as Samson does, he takes this personally. And so he says, you're not going to do me like this. This time it's right in my eyes for what I'm going to do to you. He gathers the 300 foxes, ties torches to their tail, and lets them run through the grain fields. Both the stored grain and the grain fields get lit on fire. The entire town of the Philistines are so angry that are so angry that this has happened. They say, who has done this? And they said, and they said to him, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken a wife and given, and given her to his companion. And then the Philistines came up and they burned her and her father with fire. Verse seven. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. Verse eight. He struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And then he went down. That's just a way of saying he killed them all. Then he went down into the cleft of the rock of Etnam. The Philistines get so mad that, that, uh, that Samson has done this. They take all of their men and they go down to, they go down to Judah. And they, they say to Judah, find us this man who has killed all of our men. Get him out here as soon as, as you can. Judah uh, takes 300 of their men and they go down and then they grab, they grab Samson who's hiding in a rock and they say, hey, we need to hand you over to the Philistines because they're going to ravage our land unless we turn you in. And so, so Samson says, sure, bind, bind me up with some ropes and hand me over to the Philistines. They bind him up with some, some fresh strings. They send him back to the Philistines. As soon as the Philistines come, he breaks, the, he breaks through the bond and he sees a fresh corpse of a donkey. This guy just knows no limits. A fresh corpse, a dead corpse of a donkey, takes its jawbone and kills a thousand men and women with a jawbone. And he celebrates with the jawbone of donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've struck down a thousand men. Now you would think after all of that, he would have a nice moment of reflection and said, how, do I, how did I get myself into this predicament? Why did I marry a Philistine woman? Why did I act in such rage when I lost a bet? Why did I storm off? Why did I have to go hiding? Why did I touch this corpse of a donkey and kill this and, and, and kill thousand, a thousand people? You think you'd have a moment of reflection? Now I need to go cleanse myself in the tabernacle, do the, do the ritual sacrifices and, and restore my relationship with God. You would think that that would be what a godly leader and man would do, but we see one of two prayers that Samson has in verse 18. He was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You've granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, Now shall, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Like He's still thinking only and exclusively about himself. And God split open the hollow place that is called Lehi, and the water came out of it, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he was revived. Therefore, the name was called En-Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day, and he judged Israel, and he judged Israel for 20 years. But this is the only judge, and this is the worst of all of the judges. It's the only judge that the narrator goes out of its way to say this at the end of verse chapter 15. He judged Israel 
in the days of the Philistines. During his entire administration, the Philistines ruled over him. He was called by God to deliver Israel from the Philistines. But he was so smitten with women, so motivated by himself, so engaged in the worldly culture that was surrounding him and caught up with his own passions that he did not fulfill the calling that God had placed upon him. And God had to save Israel in spite of him rather than because of him. Brothers and sisters, may it not be of us. God is going to save people in Reno and Sparks. God is going to do amazing things in this world. The question isn't whether God is going to work. The question is whether God is going to work because of your faith, because you trust him, because you obey him, because you're following him, because you love him, because you're using your resources for him and for his glory and for his sake, or if God is going to work in spite of you. God is going to accomplish his work in a way that is pleasing to him. And for some of us, it's going to be in spite of him, in spite of you. Because of your self-centeredness, because of your bitterness, because of your anger, because of your unwillingness to get over a personal grudge, God is going to have to work in spite of you. But praise be to God that for many of us here, God is going to work because of you, because you have trusted in him because you know his grace, because you've received his mercy, because you want to share that with the world. Brothers and sisters, may God work in and through Sierra Bible Church because of his great grace and his mercy towards us and our response of faithfulness to him and love and obedience to what he's called us to do. I wish it got better from there. There's only one chapter left. I, and I wish that this was the, the point in the story in which the narrator takes a break and says, but Samson learned his lesson. Samson came to his senses, repented and led Israel in faithfulness and justice for the remainder of his tenure. But look at verse chapter 16. Samson went to Gaza that's the land occupied by Philistines. And there he saw a prostitute, woman number two. And he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him. Like, okay, we're going to finally get this guy. We're going to go outside the city gates. We're going to wait for the morning to come. And then we're going to, as soon as he comes out of this prostitute's brothel, we are just going to ambush him and we're going to take him out once and for all. Verse 3, but Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose, and he took hold of the doors of the gates of the city, two posts, he pulled them up, bar and all, he put them on his shoulders, and he carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. He picks up the door and just puts it on his shoulders, and he walks out, and they're like, we're not messing with that guy. He can do that. We're not touching him. And he treks all the way to Hebron, which is about 40 miles away from Gaza. Obviously, he doesn't go the entire way. He goes to the top of this mountain and just sets the door there. It's like, it's good there. That's girl number two. Verse four, girl number three. 
after this, he loved a woman. He never, never said that he loved his first wife, never said that he loved the prostitute. But now, after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And the lords, literally translated tyrants of the Philistines, came up to her and said, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, that we may each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. There's a note here that needs to be made before I go any further. Delilah's setting up a... Delilah's setting up a, an opportunity to sabotage Samson, going to use his lust against him and allow for herself to make a lot of money by finding out the secret to his strength. There's an important note that I need to insert here before we go any further because of so many things surrounding this story uh, that it, as it's culturally taught. How many of you have memories of Sunday school or flannel graphs with Samson in these types of stories? How many of you have memories of flannel graphs with Samson and how do is he depicted? Six-pack abs, huge chest, chiseled, looking like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. The last image that you get of Samson is that he looks anywhere near the resemblance of a Baptist preacher. He looks like a mountain of a man when he's depicted, right? But that flies in the face of what the Philistines come to Delilah and ask him, like, find out his secret. Why would they need to understand his secret if he looked like Dwayne the Rock Johnson? He'd be like, of course, the man is Goliath. He's nine feet tall. Of course he can kill everybody. There's no secret. His strength is in his muscles. He was just an average looking dude that could do all of this stuff. They knew the power came from a greater, more mystical source than his own strength. So, as you see Christian films depicting Samson and he looks like a World Wrestling Federation champion, say, no, that's not what the Bible says about him. The Bible goes out of its way to say that his strength does not come from himself. So Samson says to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought her up seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried. She bound him with them, and they had, now she had been lying, lying with, now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as thread of flax snaps when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Delilah badgers him again. Behold, you've mocked me and you've told me lies. Please tell me how I might be bound. And then he says, it wasn't fresh bowstrings, it was new ropes. Maybe she loves me and she won't do this. 
But she, she ties him up again. The Philistines come again. He snaps the ropes and they walk away. Delilah says again, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And finally, he says to her, if you weave seven locks of my head with a web and fasten it tight with a pin, then I shall become weak and like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah braided his hair, put a lock, fastened it into a web and locked it away. And the Philistine, and she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep, pulled away the pin, loom and web, and the Philistines went away because his strength was there. Verse 15. And she said to him, how can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? Now she's bringing out the big guns. I'm going to leave you if you don't tell me. How can you, how can you tell me that you love me and you not share this secret with me? Your heart is not with me. You've mocked me these three times, and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard, verse 16, with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. (sighs) I don't want to lose her. She gives me everything that my flesh desires. But I also don't want to tell her the secret of my strength. (laughs) Dilemma. Brothers and sisters, the pattern of following your own sinful desires puts you in a snare, does it not? Is it not clear that the only place that sin leads is to slavery? Pressed him, his soul was vexed to death. Finally, he disclosed everything in his heart. A razor has never come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me. And I shall become weak and be like any other man. He's already touched corpses at length, killed thousands of people and not gone through the ritual to cleanse himself. He's already probably drank like a lush. But some reason he's kept the Nazaritic vow of his long hair. When Delilah saw that he had told her all of his heart, she sent and was called the lords of the Philistines saying, come up again. For he has told me all in his heart. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees. Just lie your head down on my lap and fall asleep. She called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, verse 20, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out at I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Verse 21, And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in prison. The Lord departed from him, did not give him the strength to free himself again. The Philistines captured him and shackled him, took out his eyes, and put him to slave labor. But God was not done. And a line of optimism in verse 20 shows what God was up to. But the hairs of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Even despite all of Samson's sinfulness, 
all of Samson's self-indulgence, God was going to use his sin to bring judgment upon the Philistines and begin the salvation of Israel. The climax of the story happens when they bring Samson into the temple of Dagon, who was the god of, uh, of grain, and who was the god of grain, and they were putting him specifically in there to show them that their god, Dagon, is stronger than the god of Samson. They're having this feast and festival of 3,000 people packed out in the temple of Dagon. They're drinking and enjoying and they're mocking Samson relentlessly. And as they bring Samson in, they, they, Samson asks, could you just put me against this pillar so I can feel the pillar and sin so that I can stay standing up? And in the, mo- the entire climax of the story, Samson doesn't pray a prayer of repentance Say, God, I've messed up so bad. I've made a shipwreck of all of the resources that you have given to me. I've not led Israel in righteousness and justice. I've not delivered Israel from the Philistines. He's thinking about himself. They gouged out my eyes. And he prays this, the second prayer to God. Verse 26. Or excuse me, uh, down a little bit farther. Verse 30. Nope, verse 28. It's in there, I promise. Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me. Only this once, O my God. Why? That I may be avenged. That's it. On the Philistines for my two eyes. God, they, they gouged out my eyes. Give me strength one more time to bring it back upon their heads. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars of which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, and his right hand on one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all of the people who were in it. This is the most condemning statement of the entire story as it climaxes here. So the dead he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. He was more useful to God dead than he was alive. And his brothers and all of his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Ashtoreth at the tomb of Manoah, his father, and he judged Israel for 20 years. What do we learn from this? We learned three things. First and foremost, stay close to God's word. Stay close to God's word. That relationship is not worth compromising. Those, that money, that job, that promotion is not worth compromising. Stay close to God's word. Secondly, what we learn from this? Kill lust and sinful passions before they kill you. Brothers and sisters, pornography is not a multi-billion dollar industry because the church avoids it so drastically. 
kill lust and sinful passions, put them on the cross of Jesus Christ before they completely consume you, shipwreck your faith, and bring down a whole host of other people who are counting on you along with you. Kill lust and sinful passions before they kill you. And lastly, use your resources for the glory of God. Yeah, you don't have supernatural strength, but God has entrusted with you resources. Every single one of you, every single person who is in this room and is breathing has been entrusted by God resources that are to be used for his glory and for the good of his people. You will not have another lifetime to use them for the glory of God. Don't expend them fully and finally upon yourself. Samson is a cautionary tale for a man with an overabundance of resources to do amazingly glorious things for God, yet could not control his own passions, did not allow for God to control him, and he wasted all of the resources on himself and his sinful flesh. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we as a church are not looking for Samson-type leaders with an overabundance amount of, of spiritual strength or spiritual insight or spiritual power, but devoid of character. I pray that we look of the, the opposite of Samson, Jesus Christ, the man who had everything at his disposal but used none of it on himself, built up those who were around him to the point of his own death, even death on the cross, he did not deserve to free people from their sin and their sinful flesh and free them to live a new life in and through Christ. If you've been following leaders like Samson your entire life, if you've seen yourself as like, man, that's me. There is a greater leader in Christ Jesus who desires to lead you be the Lord of your life and give you everything that you need to follow him with obedience for the rest of your life and into the age that is to come. If you want to know more about him and how you can begin a relationship with him, talk with myself, one of the pastors or shepherds this morning, and don't leave here without knowing him. If perhaps you've known him and, and you're caught in this trap, in this Samson-like trap of indulging in sinful flesh, don't leave here today without resolving to put that on the cross, repent of sin, and begin walking again with Jesus afresh. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. God, we praise you for the cautionary tales that are given in Scripture that help us to turn away from the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and the worldliness that so easily entangles us. God, I pray for our people here. God, I pray that you would do a work by your spirit to draw people to yourself so that resources might not be expended upon oneself, but they might be magnified for your glory. God, I pray that you would help us to be crystal clear about who we're following. God, I, I pray for the men who are ensnared in lust and pornography. 
God, I pray that they would be able to come clean and not get ensnared like Samson. God, I pray for the women who may be emotionally caught up in an illicit relationship outside of their spouse. God, I pray that you would do a deep work to allow for them to come clean, that they may not be using their uh, resources, God, for uh, sinful pleasure, but for your glory. God, I pray for us as a church to resound to your glory, to know you deeply, to worship you truly, and to bring you all of the glory and all of the praise that you are deserving of. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.